everyone. Welcome to In Her Words. My name is Tando Mazubugo, your host today. Before I introduce our guest today, I'd like you to please subscribe to my YouTube channel and turn on your notifications so you know when we have an amazing episode. Today's guest has a 30 years experience of being an occupational therapist and is a first-time author and has written the book, Lamless Street. Welcome, Jill. Hi, Jill. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. It's lovely to be here. Really good. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. Um, Jill is all the way from the UK, but is in Canada right now. Um, we just had a chat about our time zone difference. <laughs> um, Jill, can you, without giving too much away, can you please tell us about your book, Lamlash Street? Okay, so Lamlash Street. Lamlash is the name of the street that I lived on. Um, I grew up in London, uh, southeast London, which was a poor working class area, and, and still is to a certain extent. Um, and but it was special because I had so much family around me. And so what I wanted to do, and only wrote the book a few years ago, is to to write about the stories, what the family life was like, what it was like for me as a 10-year-old growing up in those times, um, what the place looked like physically, because I wanted people to understand how things have changed over the years. I mean, I have a 33-year-old daughter, and at times she'll say things like, oh, the world's a terrible place. So I think, well, yes, it is, and it is complex, and I do understand the concerns. However, it would be really good if you could understand the challenges we had back in those days, as opposed to the challenges we have now, which are different, but nonetheless still as, as challenging. Um, so, for example, back in the day, um, if you wanted to do your laundry, it was a whole day event. So... Monday morning was always, this is just an example, always laundry day, Monday, for everyone. All the women in the, the whole street did their laundry on Monday. It just seemed to be a thing. Uh, and we had this um, washing machine. It's called an Empress washing machine, which had to literally be dragged out. This thing was about like three feet wide and about like five feet high. It was a massive, great thing. And, it, and my mum had to fill it up with water from uh, the sink. So it was a, a cold hose pipe went from the sink over to where the the washing machine was, and then the water had to boil. And then we had to put the sheets in first because you have sheets always have to be boiled to make sure they're really clean. And then as the water cooled down, then you put the other things in there. Um, then after that, you had this mangle, it's these two rollers that would uh, roll around and squeeze the water out of all the clothing that came out. And this took a whole day. By the time you you brought the thing out, you, there was steam all over the room. There was water all over the floor. And then my mum had to walk up two full flights of stairs, uh, like 26, 27 stairs, just to get to the flat roof of the house to hang the clothing out to, for it to dry. There were no dryers in those days. So it's very, very labour intensive. So, yes, things are different these days, but, you know, Thank God we can just pop a pot in the washing machine now. I just love that. <laughs> you know, washing now, laundry is not a thing you think about in that sense. So that, in a sense, is a good example of how things have changed. And so I wanted um, people to have a perspective on what life was like then and what the challenges were then. Um, and then try to give some perspective to today's society as well. 
Um, so that was one of the reasons. The other reason is that, um, as in most families, you go to the weddings, you go to the family celebrations, they, the aunts and uncles are usually talking about, do you remember when this person did this and when, when Aunt Sanso did that? So every time we went to a wedding, and there were lots of weddings, so it was a huge family, um, the same stories would be retold. It's, I think it was a form of oral history, really. So the same stories would be told over and over again. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have that written down? Um, partly because my mum was the youngest of 12 in the family. So obviously her uh, brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles, were, were dying before mum did. And, and she, in the end, she was the very last one to pass on. Um, but I wanted there to be somewhere where these were written down so that they would not be lost. And so that's what I did. I started to write down the stories I could recall about going to school, about how I learned to swim, about life. It, it's really, it's a, it's a year. Starts in Christmas of 62, finishes in Christmas of 63 with a Christmas party because I love Christmas. And, and it gives you like a, a feel for what it was like to live in those days. And at the same time, um, my family's stories are not lost. And for that reason, I like to encourage other people to do a similar thing. I love that. Um, your book focuses on post-World um, War II and how things were shifting at that time and, you know, um, going into the 60s and the Beatles were such a big thing at that time. And But people were still dealing with the trauma of the war. And you do speak about um, your uncle. I'm an uncle's girl. I'm very close with my uncles. <laughs> and how he was sharing stories about the war. How did those stories shape you as a as a girl, as a woman, till today, you think? Uh, it's an interesting question because um, you, when you grow up, you don't really understand all the influences or you don't appreciate the influences that your parents pass on to you. Um, but when I was writing the book and I was looking back and I was thinking everywhere I looked, so uncle was telling me his war stories. He was only 17. He was going off to war. He saw his fellow uh, soldiers dying around him as, as a 17-year-old. Um, he went to New York. Um, he spent a day in New York. He he, he was in a... Um, there was a, a charitable um, ladies knitting circle, basically in New York. And um, the crew on my uncle's ship were asked to judge a cake baking competition. But all at 17 years of age, never had been outside the country before. So he did amazing things at a very, very early age. Um, but it, there was a lot of discipline around it as well. They gave up a lot. Any country does when you're at war. You, you not only do you sacrifice um lives of some of your fellow countrymen but in addition to that there's so much you do without and so I think that discipline and that um, desperation for a better tomorrow because they've been through this horrendous horrendous war um, was one of the the things that, that I was passed on to me so in turn I'm you could call me stubborn or focused whichever way you want to look at it and I am um when you know when it's an important thing, I'm very very word. The word Sorry? assertive. The word is just assertive. <laughs> well, that's right. yeah. Now it's assertive. It's actually quite interesting you saying that because yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, back when I was 
being raised as a child, uh, children were seen and not heard, and boys were so much better than girls uh, because the, the men were the war heroes coming back from war, and the men had a, a lot of uh, sway, a lot of influence. Um, and women really had to speak up for themselves. Um, and my mother was different, though, which is, I think, where I get this wrong as well. Um, my mother, being the youngest of 12, as I said earlier, and she has six brothers and five sisters, so it was six and six. Um, but mum has decided that she was going to be the head of the household of our family. That was unheard of in the whole of the family. They always thought that Ivy, my mum's first name, was a little bit... Um, too assertive, should we say? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because she, she, would, <laughs> she would not do as she was being advised to or told by the, 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 the male members. But in those days, even the women deferred to the men. It's like, oh, well, you know, that's what he wants sort of thing. So although I was brought up in the 1960s where I could both have gone through my life saying, oh, well, you know, sort of thing. Um, the reality was that my mum had sort of led the way. Um, one of the, the there's a huge argument in the family, I can still recall this, when, um, okay, we decided to move from London, not we, my mother decided we were moving from London to a better location outside London into Kent, which was very suburban, lots of green fields as opposed to London being full of, you know, buildings and smoke and fumes and so on. And she said, when we move, we are going to buy a house. Now, at that point, everybody rented housing. Nobody bought a house. Nobody had a mortgage. That was for the rich and famous. And she said, no, we are going to mortgage a house. And everybody in the family, all of her brothers and sisters said, don't you dare do that. You'll have this millstone around your neck. You'll have to pay for all your own house repairs. You will never see the end of it. Negative, negative, negative. Uh, but mum said, no, that's what I'm doing. And she did. And that's what we did. So she was very, um, you know, she didn't make a, a lot of fuss about it. She just told people what she was doing and she did it, which for that time was very, very, very unusual. It was only 18 years after World War II. And like I said, the, the returning, the men were they the war heroes at the time. They'd saved the country, that sort of thing. So, um, yes, I, I'm pleased she passed that on because uh, it's made my life really interesting as well. <laughs> Um, you do speak about your mom. I was going to ask you about her influence and how ambitious she was and how she gave you um, the ambition. She told you that you better work your butt off in school or you're going to be <laughs> someone's worker. I, I just loved your book. It was just encapsulated me, it encapsulated me so much. Um, so you do touch on that, that, you know, she was the youngest of 12 and was so determined. Um you're, you come from a rich, well, from your book, your rich family and community and about how your community has shaped you in in the book, um, which is very different from now. Um, we don't commune a lot, um, which is very sad. How was it for you to adjust from when you moved from um, London to Kent? Uh, well, yeah, it was it was very, very difficult. Um, it was devastating in a sense because I was 12, 13, teenage years when it's difficult, whatever is happening in your life. And so then we moved from London to a place where it was just us. There were no relatives around me. There were no aunts, uncles or cousins. So if my parents were having a bad day, there was no aunt to run to and say, look, mum's really getting a bit strange. Can you go and talk to her? And my aunt would go and talk to my mum in my earlier life. But 
No, it was very isolating. Um, in addition to that, just changing schools. And when I got to school in London, I had a very Southeast London Cockney accent, which was no problem at all in London. I moved out to Kent and it was a very refined accent and um, they couldn't understand what I was saying. <laughs> so I had to completely change the way I spoke within about six months so that so I could start to feel I could fit in with classes, with the, with, with the students there, with the other girls. So, uh, yeah, it was very difficult. Um, we did see um, the family a few times who came down to visit us, but it wasn't the same. And the other thing you have to recall is back in the day, there was no internet. So it was either writing a letter and posting through the, the mailbox, which as kids, you never did. I mean, to be honest, <laughs> uh, you couldn't use the telephone. The house telephone um, was, it was by the minute. So there was no way you're going to be able to, to talk to anybody. Obviously, no WhatsApp, no no messenger, nothing, no email, nothing. Um, so it was a very difficult transition. Um, and I don't think, it took me a long time, I think, to um, understand what was happening. Um, and I've spoken to a few people since who went through a similar thing because a lot of families were moving out at the same time. Uh, and they had the same experience. It was a very, the parents said it was for our best and for our future. Yes, and academically, I did much better for that. But uh, it was it was a struggle, a real struggle. Yeah. Yeah, as any transition is. Um, yeah. You say that you you write a bit of Cockney in your book, <laughs> chapter one. <laughs> Can you teach me some? <laughs> I have to get into the accent, obviously, not of my South African accent. Can you teach me some Cockney? <laughs> well, your accent's lovely, by the way. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was important to, because um, I, I haven't spoken in years, right? You have to just remember this. I mean, this was going back in the day. And I just picked out a few of them. So I, the one in the book is I up the apples and, and pears. So yeah. if my mum was calling me, yeah, I'll, I'll give you the example in the book, right? And uh, so if my mum was calling, she said, uh, Jill, can you go up the apples, please, and go up and comb your barnet? So that translates into, can you go up the apples and, and pears, the stairs, and can you go and comb your barnet, your barnet fair, which rhymes with hair? So it's, it's very arbitrary, right? But it, it was around me all the time. So I, you pick up on all these phrases. And like I said, when I went to, to Bexley Heath, um, to where we moved to, nobody knew what I was talking about. So I had to completely <laughs> change everything. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's actually, there's a lot of books out there on Cockney rhyming slang, mm -hmm. tons of them. Um, so, yeah, and, and now, I mean, I've lost the accent to a certain extent as well because it's been years and years. But, yes, it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 actually, I was talking to mum because uh, when I was writing the book, mum was still alive. Mm -hmm. um, sadly, she died of COVID um, a few months after the book was published, but she had read the book, which I was so happy about. Mm -hmm. um, and I said to her, I said, mum, I know we used to speak Cockney rhyming slang and I, that the family doesn't really, I mean, my cousin still says a few words and I have no idea what it means. So I have to ask him to translate for me. Um, but she said, yeah, she always said, you know, you, you used it a bit, she said, but not nearly as much as everyone else. She said, you were always a bit different. I thought, oh, all right, mum. <laughs> I'm not sure why you tried to say that. Um, yeah, but my, I speak to my cousin um, almost every day, uh, even now, because like, we're WhatsApping when we, we, we call, right? And uh, he says, whereas, and I have not a sweet clue what half of them mean. <laughs> so I have to ask him to translate. 
because I, I like in the UK now, I've been there for like three years, mm-hmm. and uh, people often say something, and I can understand the rest of the sentence. And there's this one word I said, "What does that mean?" <laughs> I'm not a sweet clue. So uh, yeah, it, it's cute. It, it gave you a sense of community, though. That's what it did, mm-hmm. because you had a shared um, way of speaking about things. It gave you a sense of community. Um, which was only good while you were in that community in London, sadly. Yeah. I, I love that. I When I read that, I was like, oh, that, that is so cool, having your own little Cockney language for your community. Um, I, I don't... I mean, the closest thing is we have is slang, which our parents are probably like, you're not making sense. <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> oh, you mean like more, more modern versions? Yeah, more modern versions. It's just like slang where things, you know, we say and parents are probably like, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm like, no, my, my daughter's 33. So I, I come across these words every so I said, uh, what does that mean? Well, mom, <laughs> I was like, oh, all right, fine. <laughs> We're close in age, so she, you're, she's probably like, I'm, I'm teaching you something new. And my mom was like, wow, okay, cool. Oh, what are you saying? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, that's fine. You know, I just like <laughs> flow now. <laughs> what was the most important lesson you feel like the book or Lamb Lash Street gave to you when you put it all together and you're just like, oh, wow, this is a memoir of my childhood. Well, a year in my childhood. It did two things. Um, There was a message. um, There was a couple of messages, really. Um, One of them my mother always used to say to me, she really emphasized education. Education to her was everything. It was the the way out of... um, the not the poverty we were in, but, it, it, but you know, it wasn't that we didn't have a lot of money. Um, but it was a way out of that. It was um, so she said that education is never ever wasted. It's it's never wasted at all. Even if you like you go halfway through a course, um, and, and I've got my graduate degree now, so I've done a lot of study, right? Um, but she said, whatever you do with education, it's never ever wasted, it always comes back to benefit you. Um, so so that's something. And the other thing the book did for me, and I, I didn't expect this, um, there were some decisions and some attitudes my parents had, you know, like they'll tell you, oh, you have to do this and don't do that, that was still sort of with me in the back of my mind, even after all these decades. And I wasn't lying awake at night thinking about them, but I was thinking, you know what, I really don't understand. You know, there was some sort of conflict there. So I wrote the book, and then when I sort of looked back on their lives and the choices they had and their educational levels, I was more at peace. I understood why, for example, we left our family in London to move outside London um, for a long time because it was such an unhappy time when we got there, a a huge transition period. Um, I was a little bit unhappy with that decision. But by the time I'd written the book, I, I can see, you know, they've been through World War II. Um, the house we lived in was condemned. It was condemned when we, walked, when we moved into the house. Um, it was drafty. It was cold. Um, we were it, When we moved to outside London, we had a house which was warm, comfortable. It was smaller because it wasn't a large Victorian house. But nonetheless, we each had a bedroom. Um, we had a, a back garden. We had a backyard. Um and the, the school was a very, it was used to be a, um, a residential school, a private school, which was then converted over to a public school, um, which anyone could attend. Um, and so I could see that from mum's viewpoint, 
They'd been through World War II. She wanted the best for her children. She wanted to give them the best opportunity she could for their own futures. And that's why we moved. Um, and like I said, it wasn't that the fa her family weren't supporting her with that move. They were saying, no, so stay here, just rent your house. They weren't supporting her at all. So I have to, and I do admire her for, for taking the hard road. Um, but I didn't see that at all until I was thinking about the stories. Because when you're writing a book, you think about what you're writing over and over again. And talking to family members about, oh, do you remember when this happened, when that happened? And they were talking about it. You gradually build up a picture of what it was really like for my mother, um, who was fighting against the odds, really, to give us an amazing future. And that's that's was what she did in, in the end. I, I love those two lessons that education will always give you something, even if you don't finish. <laughs> um, and your our parents all often have to make difficult decisions too, and they're human too. And sometimes we don't see them as humans. What did why was why was writing a memoir um, important to you as your first book? Because you had a career as an occupational therapist, and now you're into a new career as an author. Why was your first book or your first offering to the world a memoir? Um, I, well, to be honest, I didn't sit down and say I'm going to be a published author. All I said to myself was, I want to write those stories down. As, as I mentioned earlier, you know, these families that were retold or this oral history, I wanted to write that down. And then um, I would, I'd written down a fair number of, of the individual stories, all of which are in the book. They, they, I sort of wove them into a storyline. Um, and it was really serendipity. I was sitting at my computer one day and I'd had retired at that point right so I wasn't working and I was sort of looking for something else to do because I get bored really easily I like new challenges all the time and I was on somebody's email list for real estate of all things and she had just started a, a book um a book launches a book program which called would offer um support for, for people that were writing their first book I thought well okay I'll, I'll see what this is all about so I wrote up to that and we we chatted, and anyway, I I, I went with them, and um, it was only then I realised that all these stories could become a book. And then, I, because it's very first time I'd ever written anything of, of that length. I mean, I wrote a thesis, okay, for my master's degree. I think only one person ever read it, other than me, <laughs> and that was probably my professor. <laughs> Whereas this is going to be different because you hope that you're going to have many different readers. So I, I got a, a book writing coach because um, I had not a sweet clue. There was nobody in my, my uh, family who had written a book, no academic ability, an academic ability, but no um, literary ability at all in terms of writing. And so um, it was almost happened by chance. And then it sort of grew and grew. And uh, yeah, it turned into a storyline. And then, um, then I got into the fun things of what will be on the front cover of the book. Um, what colour will the pages be, cream or whites, and all these things I've never, ever even thought of. Uh, have websites, have you have a website set up? Oh, really? And then you have a Facebook author page. Really? I didn't know about that either. So it's been an amazing journey, really unexpected. Um, and But I've, I've loved every moment of it because it's been so, um, so rewarding. It's, it's been exciting because stuff happens that you don't expect. When you're an author, suddenly your world changes. People look at you differently. I mean, I, I, so I've written a book 
It's like, oh, you're a published author. Uh, well, yes. It's like, it's like, oh, it's amazing. Well, it was nice and it was a lot of work, but, you know, I don't think it's that amazing. But if you enjoy it, I'm very, very happy, you know? <laughs> and your book right? was so great. I enjoyed it. I was reading it and I was so captivated by it. And I was telling my mother, I'm like, I can't wait to meet Jill and <laughs> <laughs> schedule. <laughs> you know, up and down. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to be, I've got so, but I've got so many questions, but I just don't want to spoil it for the next person to read it. They need to buy it and read it. And they could just, I don't know, tweet you or Facebook you and ask you the question that they want to ask you. It's just such an amazing, funny, captivating story. And I, it's, I think it's so amazing. Oh, thank you. It's very nice. Thank you. Yeah, I try to keep the humor in it because that is the way I think. And that, that was the other really interesting thing. It's like, although I wrote it, and obviously I'm writing it now as, as a 10-year-old then, but it, it felt as if it was the real me. Um, I, I could it's I could see it. how it, it's still, yeah, it's still a core part of my personality, despite everything else that's gone on in life. That's that that approach and that, oh, well, I guess this is going to have to happen. Okay, well, never mind, we'll deal with this. That sort of <laughs> philosophical approach, which is what was in the book quite a bit, um, is still with me, yeah. Uh, I love it. Um, you do touch, you did touch on that you had retired when you started writing the book. And as someone who has been an occupational therapist, what sort of advice would you give someone who is close to retirement, into retirement, uh, and wanting to start something new? Because as soon as people retire, it's like, oh, you can just sit and rot. I don't know what happens. <laughs> That's what people think that retirement is, but your life is still not over. So what kind of advice would you give to someone who wants to, and, and other women who would want to take up a new career? Well, I think I've done more since I retired than I had in all the other years. I mean, I just think raised a child, and I'm not putting that down, but um, more things that I really wanted to do. Um, and I think my biggest piece of advice is if you tell yourself it's too late, you are missing out on so, so much. Um, I, When I was 65, which is a couple of years ago now, um, I started running 5Ks. Now, I never, yes, I know. I have never in my whole life, I mean, in age 12, I, I really didn't like running very much. Mm -hmm. But I, I had a personal trainer, something else I hadn't done before. And so I was, you know, I was reasonable shape and then I went to my personal trainer and said look you know do, do you think I you know it's reasonable for me to start running 5ks and I thought she's going to laugh herself to death sort of thing so oh, no she said just to check with your doctor so I went through that whole process and then uh, right up till COVID I was running 5ks now I wasn't the fastest or the best but you know what I was still running yeah <laughs> and I was getting was better plus? yeah when, when's your next book what is your next book going to be about <laughs> actually i'm in the process of trying to decide what what twist to put on the next book because i've done so much stuff that you don't expect to do in my 60s um that i thought well should i write about that should i write about something so i'm, I'm in a bit of a quandary now but I, i'm, I'm going to work my way through that um but yeah no it, it's it's been a ton of fun i mean you know, even when you go to the gym and, you, and your head is saying, oh, you're too old for this. Oh, what are you thinking? And then you put on your, your spandex stuff, you know, and you've got your, 
um, you've got your gear on, your running gear, and, and, and you feel different. And then you're talking to people and they're talking, oh, what was your time like? Oh, mine was this. And it's a world I'd never really been part of before. And I was having a way all the time. So there was that going on. Um, my book was almost ready to be published. Um, and uh, in between, I'd lived, uh, I was in Canada at the time, but I was on the East Coast. And I lived three years in Alberta, which is like about five hours by plane in the opposite direction. So I'd done that for a couple of years and I loved that as well. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 so my, my message to people is don't ever tell yourself you can't do it um, or it's too late. If you're telling yourself you can't do it, it means you're thinking you have to be the best. So don't sit there thinking I'm going to write a book and it has to be like Shakespeare. No, it's not going to be. And it doesn't have to be. Just write what you want to and if, for example, you want to do something more physical like running, which you've never done in your whole life, don't say, well, you know, it, it's too 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 late and I've got this injury and that injury. The reality is that we all have injuries. And I can remember years ago, um, we were down in Houston at the Johnson Space Center. My daughter had just gone on a robotics. There was a robotics uh, competition through the schools. So we, 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 we as parents, we dutifully went flew into Houston. Anyway, so I can remember there was this huge uh, dinner uh, for the parents and the kids and the people from NASA were doing their, their talks. And we were surrounded by all these um, space suits and models um, of space and all those sort of lunar landings and all that sort of thing. And she said, you look at us, she said, and you think it's amazing. We've just landed or we have landed somebody on the moon and we do all these amazing things in space. And she said, uh, so you're probably sitting there thinking you, you can't do this. She said, but what you have to remember is you can do anything. It may take you like a million steps, which it probably did for, for that major project. But she said, all we did was plan out the, the steps. And then we gradually started with one, then two, then three, then four. And eventually we got to the point where we met our target and we landed on the moon. Um, and yes, did we have setbacks? Yes, we did. But but we still did it. And I guess that's the message I like to, to leave people with. You can still do it, but you may have to do it more slowly. I mean, I, it took about a year before I was up to running um, because I didn't want to injure myself. Um, so whatever you want to do in this life, you, you can do it. It may take longer. You may have to adapt it. So maybe, now I'm not into skydiving, but if I were, <laughs> I probably wouldn't go solo <laughs> skydiving. <laughs> I'd be strapped on the back of somebody. But, yeah. you know, at least you're having the experience of the, the, the jump, which is, I can tell you, is not in my list. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> not um, <laughs> but but the, the message is the same. Yes. Do it. Uh, take your time. Don't rush. Uh, you don't have to be the best. And uh, adapt if you have to, but still have the experience. Don't ever tell yourself you can't do it. I love that. I love that. And I'm so glad that you shared this wonderful story about your life and there's so much more in the book so so much more and I'm, I wish people just can get buy it I will put all the links of the book and okay. where it's sold and I am so glad that you availed your time to speak to me and my audience um, which is young women from age 28 to 34 mostly but it's very inspiring because a lot of the time in our age group, we think we're running out of time. We're not doing enough. We're so behind in life. Our friends, we don't have this and that. So it's so important to speak to, you know, older women 
to bring us back. Like, where are you rushing to? You've got so much time ahead. And I'm so glad I had that opportunity to speak to you. Thank you so much for that. Oh, you're welcome. And yeah, it's really important. I, mean, I can remember being in my 30s and I can remember thinking, oh, no, no, I'm never going to have a family. This is not going to happen. That's not going to happen. <laughs> in 30 years time when you're 60 something you can say oh I ha- I'm, I'm running out of time still <laughs> it's, it's, it's not true you, you, you don't run out of time you might run out of enthusiasm but you certainly don't run out of time that's for sure yeah thank you so much Joel you're welcome more than welcome it's been a pleasure thank you it's been a pleasure thank you bye bye-bye